Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. Today's guest is Marco Benevento. Marco is a keyboardist, songwriter, producer, and a defier of any simple description or genre. Marco has had multiple musical projects in his career, notably with his friend Joe Russo in the jazz rock group Benevento Russo Duo, and now in the incredible Grateful Dead tribute band Joe Russo's Almost Dead. Marco's journey as a songwriter and band leader is even more impressive, producing seven solo albums whose vibes are so varied that I honestly hear dozens of different bands in each one of them. We discuss the life experiences and influences behind Marco's unique blend of indie pop, jazz, hard rock, and improvisation. And we'll hear what the sound on his latest record, Let It Slide, which he's called Hot Dance Piano Rock, means for the future of his re-energized band. And at the conclusion of our interview, we'll hear an exclusive live performance direct from Marco's studio in upstate New York. Links to the video of this performance, as well as a Spotify playlist containing all the music discussed in this episode, are available in the show notes. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm here with Marco Benevento. Marco, last time I saw you, you guest DJed on the Corin Train, the dance party that Osiris has been doing every Saturday night. Um, it looked like you were having fun for that. Oh, man, uh, I had a blast, honestly. Uh... I mean, I knew it was going to be fun, but it was really a lot of fun. My wife came out to the studio and was dancing around with me, and and uh, she was kind of showing me the feed. And, but yeah, it was super fun. Yeah. I had a blast. I love spinning records. and The music was pretty eclectic, too, I, and I want to get into that because I know you have influences all over the place, um, but it seemed like you were digging deep on, on those, at least a lot of stuff that I'm not familiar with, so that's pretty cool. Right on. Thanks. Yeah, I've, I developed a bit of a addiction to collecting 45s and... Yeah, I was I want to get to that. I want to I want to go way back and start and and ask you what's your first musical memory? That's funny. It definitely relates to a 45. I think I was probably about 5 years old. I remember my brother and I had like this plastic uh record player and we had a 45 on there and it was The Alley Cat by Bent Fabric. You'd recognize it if you heard it. This is piano melody. It's kind of like a jazz song. It's da 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 da. It's this. You know, and it's like, I remember vividly like messing with the speed of it, and then it'd be like. And we just like danced around to it, and then we slowed it down, and it was like. I just I remember laughing like on the floor and being like, well, let's do this every night. Like this is hilarious. How old do you think you were? Yeah, I was like five or something. Uh, you know, a big early memory for me is just my whole family. Like we, my dad loves to sing and my uncle likes to play guitar and everybody likes to sing and just like everybody loves music. Nobody was a musician in my family, but like the love for music was always in there. They weren't like crazy fans of any one particular thing but my dad is from Italy so he he was into like traditional Neapolitan music and everybody would sing it and then my uncle was into the Beatles and we would sing the Beatles so it was like we definitely had like a family 
love for music. Did your dad emigrate here or, or grandparents? Yeah, my dad did. My dad came here when he was 15 with his brother and his two sisters. So what role do you think music played in helping your dad assimilate? I think the role of music was pretty, like, actually, it was pretty significant, right? It must have been with my dad. I mean, like, coming over here and learning all the, the Bob Dylan songs and the Simon and Garfunkel and all this, the songs that were happening around the, the late 60s and early 70s. I remember another early memory is, like, my dad singing the Beatles song, um, Oh, Blah, Dee, Oh, Blah, Da, like, when I was really little. And, like, he'd be like... Life goes on. And I was like, oh, my silly father from Italy is making up songs again. Like, And I thought that he like wrote that song because he'd like, sing it to us before bed. And he was like, and I'm like, oh, dad. So from those early memories, did you become interested in music right away or did that take a while to develop? I grew up in like the era, it seems like when like everybody just took piano lessons, like from your cousin to your friend to like, you know, everybody, everybody had a piano in the house, you know, so I took piano lessons and liked it, like maybe liked it more than maybe like, you know, most people, but I wasn't like crazy, like, like practicing all the time. I wasn't like crazy into it, I guess, but, uh. I got into it and was like, just kind of maybe had a year or two of lessons and was getting through it and then, and then got like to do recitals and stuff. And then I remember my dad coming home with like a Casio synthesizer. And I just remember thinking like how cool that was that you could put on headphones and change sounds. I remember that being another sort of eye opener for me. And then, and then like a few years later, I asked my dad to get another synthesizer uh, a Kawaii K1. And, uh, and then I was like, I want to get a drum machine and an amp and a four track recorder. And then, you know, and then by 14 or 15 years old, I had kind of a setup in my room of like, you know, two synthesizers, a four track recorder, a drum machine. And then I'd start, just started playing with, you know, musicians and stuff, started playing a little bit more, but. It sounds like your parents were pretty pretty supportive of the music thing from the beginning. Like, right? Yeah, they totally were supportive. Like, so supportive that when I turned 16, I, I was at a summer camp when my birthday happened. So I didn't have a birthday party with my parents. And um, I was, like, obsessed with the Hammond organ. And I had a Wanad cutout uh, in my drawer. And it was a B3 for sale. And I was like, oh, really? I really want to get this B3 and begging my parents to get it. And I left the, that cutout in my desk drawer. And I was away at summer camp for my birthday. And then when I got home from summer camp, that organ was sitting in my living room. No way. They got me that organ. So, And that's the Hammond organ that I tour with, with Joe Russo's Almost Dead. The first... Hammond I ever got, a Hammond A100. It was mislisted as a B3. It was like, B3 for sale. And then I came home and I'm like, this doesn't look like it. And I was like, oh, this is an A100. But the guy didn't know. My dad got it, so he didn't know either. It was just a yeah. very expensive, large piece of furniture now living in the house. So you're 16. You're surrounded by musical instruments. What were you listening to at the time? Do you remember any you know, first albums that like blew your mind or, or artists that you were like obsessed with at the time? Yeah, uh, absolutely. The meters. 
And I had a band in high school when, like, by the time I was 17, and these kids, I was playing with these dudes from the city that I had met at that same summer camp, actually. And and they got me into the meters, and I was like, I had Look Up High Pie, and I remember listening to that record, like, every day when I was, like, 17. I had just bought, like, On the Corner, and I put it on, and I was like, what is this, like? What's happening? Like, every song is the same, I think. Like, I scrolled through, and I was like, I think every song is the same. I knew there was something good in there, but my brain, I don't know, wasn't quite there yet with all the music I had been learning. And then eventually, towards the end of high school, I was headed to to music college, and, and it was there that I learned so much, and so many things clicked. Yeah, I was wondering about that, because I know that... So you went to Berkeley, and... That must have just been an incredibly uh, mind-opening experience for a young musician. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Um, was there anyone who was a particular like mentor in those years when you got to Berkeley, or people you met who were just like changed your life? Absolutely. I I was a total dork. I took m- more credits than I needed to. I stayed there through the summer and like took classes and took like crazy like advanced ear training where you like listen to bird calls and write down the notes and. I got into like playing congas. I got into playing upright bass. I got into playing like the frame drum for a little. I I was a total nerd, but you know, also knew how to have a good time. But um, I would say my my number one mentor would be Joanne Brackeen. She is still killing it. She's still playing piano and is just kind of a, a legend, really, in the jazz world. Um, and she she really pushed me to to be the player that I basically am. I guess she she brought me up to this other level. After her class, she she like came up to me and was like, you know, you could be the one of the best piano players at Berkeley, if not the best piano player at Berkeley, if you practice. And I was like, I practice. And as I as the words came out of my mouth, I was like, I don't practice. Like I. I just like jam with my friends and have a good time and like practice a little bit. And so she was like, you should come study with me and all whatever. I mean, I'm so grateful and thankful that she even mentioned that. It was so cool. It was very flattering. And then was also like a coach being like, if you train with me, you know, I can get you to where you, you could get to, you know. So that was really cool. I also had another teacher that was really amazing. His name is Bruce Thomas. And he was sort of like the other side of of that you know joanne was you know the kind of woman who um knew my weaknesses and really was like the trainer the coach that was like do this do this wrong that sounded terrible do that again and bruce was kind of the teacher that was like really just like you know teaching you about moderation and about life and about jazz and cool encounters that he's had i don't know he's like he was he was more like a cool uncle teacher guy that was like just like let me just be myself and be be the long-haired hippie i still am and and was at the time and (laughs) just like come in and just like jam in in a minor for a while or, or you know so anyway yeah those two people were pretty pretty huge and then after that i actually had a chance to study with brad meldow which is pretty mind blowing i went to his house for a long afternoon in newburgh new york he really inspired me as well you know as far as like chops goes and getting around on the piano you know joanne brackeen and brad meldow during that time i was i was really shedding a lot during that time so when you think about someone like brad meldow as a mentor 
What does that actually mean? What do you learn from someone like that? I remember that day of just being like, that was like a special day for me. That was like a very cool hang. He was just like a dude. He because he had seen me at shows. I would hang out with him afterwards. I'd like hang out with Larry and Jorge, who who was they were their his rhythm section for like years. I was like fanboy with with Brad Meldow. I like we like somehow got to know each other kind of just from the shows. And he like put me on the guest list one night, which was really cool. And then I went to a show with my girlfriend and and like and then she reached out to his manager and got that lesson as a gift. And so I went there and it was like a hang. It was more, it was kind of like just being totally touched and inspired by a dude for a day. It was mm-hmm. like really cool. And he was like, hey, just what are you working on? And I'm like, what am I working on? Uh, I don't know. Like I was just starstruck, just kind of like, I don't know what I'm working on. You know, and he's like, oh, I'll be right, I'll be right down. You just go down to the piano, play for a little bit. I'll be right there. And I'll it was really funny because I was covering the song at the time, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover with Joe Russo, when the duo had just started, which is right around this time. And we had started, a, we had just started playing that. And I went to Brad Meldow's house and that music, that sheet of music was on his piano, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. And I was like, oh my God. And he came back from where he was and he's like, I was like, Brad, this is crazy to see because I actually am playing this song with, with this with my duo, with my band. He's like, oh, really? How do you play it? And I like, I like froze. I was like, um, I don't know. We just, you know, we basically play it like the record. But anyway, time with, with, with him was just like one of those, like, like a day with Brad Meldow was just like a total inspiration. We went, we talked about all sorts of stuff, like songs that I wrote. We talked about standards. We talked about classical music. We talked about what we like to eat for lunch. I don't know, just all sorts of stuff. It was like a cool life lesson of like, all right, like you could be this badass and also just be like a cool guy who can just, you can just hang out with. And, you know, even though you see him at the Village Vanguard and it's sold out six nights in a row and he's like the new inspiration for a lot of people, you know, he's still a super nice, knowledgeable, uh, approachable dude. So you mentioned Joe, so we have to talk about your relationship with Joe, because when you had all these instruments in your room before you went to college, you guys already knew each other. When did you guys start playing? Yeah, I had met Joe during that time, like seventh and eighth grade, uh, like, you know, 13, 14. And we like jammed once at his house. I brought my keyboard to his house and we played a Zeppelin tune and like a Bon Jovi song or something. I don't even know what we played. He was in my grade. He was in seventh grade, but he was like in a band with uh, the older kids. He was in a band with the eighth graders. We played like a couple of times and we were friends, but we, we didn't like hang out a lot. You know, we remained friends through through high school, even though we, we didn't go to, to the same high school. Joe and I like kept in touch and we we got along and like played together when we were super young and didn't know what we were doing. And we like jammed when we're like, have you ever checked out Rush? Or like, do you have Led Zeppelin 4? Like that kind of stuff. was. And the Zeppelin stuff has remained useful for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. But we remain friends. Joe actually came to visit me when I was a freshman at Berkeley. And and he was considering going to music school. But, but Joe was such a badass. He's just naturally, he's just self-taught and like can figure stuff out like a genius. Like he's like idiot savant just kind of like wait what like how did you get that so fast uh so uh, he didn't need school he's just he's just good 
I wound up running into Joe in Manhattan kind of right when I moved there in 2001, I think it was, you know, basically a year out after college or something. And then that's basically when the whole duo started. So that was 20 years ago. And you guys have like more or less been playing together the whole time. What's it been like to have a kind of musical creative partner for that long? You know, it's just like, it's just like that feeling of like being with your close friends, you know, when you, or like your family really is like walking into the house and like all your, your family's there, you know, like it's a very comforting feeling. Not like we ever did anyway, but you don't have to try to be someone else. You know, you could just be yourself and they've known you forever and I've seen so much over the years that it's, it's the best, you know, and, and it spills over to, to Dave and the Scott and the Tommy too, where we all really feel comfortable around each other. We know like all the different phases of the, like the last 20 years, 25 years of like touring. And, you know, honestly, we're all from like the same sort of area. Even too, we got like the Jersey's, close to New York City, Tommy's closer to Philly, Scott's kind of right in the middle there, you know. I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Just all, like, growing up with the same sort of shit, I guess. (laughs) I couldn't even imagine, like, playing as many shows as we do and living, you know, on tour buses and airplanes and hotels with, with anybody else, you know, or people that aren't. That I'm not so close to, and and you know, every once in a while you get tossed into those situations as a musician, uh, where you're either subbing for someone or playing with another band that you rarely play with, like one time, and and you're like, whoa, I don't even really know these people. This is so weird. It's just a different feeling, and it and it's fine, and it's all good. And sometimes it could be really cool with meeting new people and learning new things about new pe- folks. So it's of course awesome, but. That comfort level of uh, knowing those guys forever really helps. So the Benevento Russo duo, or just the duo as people know it, in the fan mind, it's sort of like you guys start playing, then you play with Trey and Mike, and then like you guys are off and running in life. Did you guys have any setbacks during that time? Like, did it feel like kind of an upward trajectory that you just guys you guys just kept growing and growing, or were there times when you were like, shit, what's going on here? Right. There were both times. Um, it always felt like it was going up when we, you know, starting at the knitting factory, playing for like 50 people, not even getting paid a hundred bucks. So Joe and I always walked with 50 bucks after those gigs for like a year, even if like the bar like destroyed it, like we would barely, or one time the bar did really well and they're like, oh, you guys get 60 bucks each tonight. And I was like, Whoa, but, um, you know, the, it, it grew from the Knitting Factory, you know, to people coming to tape the Knitting Factory to us being like, oh, we shouldn't have a free residency because then if we want to do a bigger show, like, how are we going to make money doing this? Like, so we can't, so we lose the residency and we play, like, a show here and there. Um, and we played at Tobacco Road a lot in Hell's Kitchen back in the day. So that was interesting, trying to figure that whole thing out. But it, it definitely... It grew. We drove across the country and, and played a High Sierra Music Festival. I booked a tour, a three-week tour out there, and then and we took my Subaru Outback on the road. And then I remember like buying a van the next year, and then bringing more keyboards. And yeah, it definitely got. It always grew. It grew, and then it was like, oh, this label Ropadope you know, wants to put out some stuff. And, you know, we grew from sort of doing a lot of improvisation to songwriting and 
playing more like almost like rock songs without lyrics kind of music, but very heavy and very aggressive and also elements of improv. But things were changing musically too. And then I think Mike Gordon caught wind of us because he was also on Rope-A-Dope. And that's how that sort of cross thing happened. And I think Mike wanted to record with Joe and that was pretty cool. We were both like, oh man, that'd be cool to play with Mike Gordon, you know. And then, then that happened. That's basically what came out of it. We started playing with Mike out of that, um, becoming friends with him. Mike even like showed up and played like keyboards with me one night at like Tribeca Rock Club. Then somehow Trey got involved. Trey wanted us to play on his record. And so, yeah, we're definitely on the up and up here. And you've told me the story about Trey calling you. Can you share that? Sure. Yeah, I just remember having, you know, before the iPhone and before the BlackBerry, there was the Trio, T-R-E-O, and, like, it broke all the time. And, like, the phone didn't work if I wanted to just use it, like, you know, held up to my ear. It only worked in speakerphone. So I had to, like, hit the screen to hit speaker, and I remember it being an 802 number, you know, which is Burlington, Vermont. And it was right around the time when I knew that we might be recording with Trey. And I was with a bunch of people. And I got a, 80, I got a call from an 802 number, and I have to answer with speaker. So I, I hit speaker, and I'm around, like, five of my friends. I'm like, hello? And, like, and, the, and Trey was like, hey, Marco, this is Trey Anastasio. And all my friends were like, what the fuck? You know, it was just, like, one of those moments I was like, ah! And I sort of smiled and, like, ran out of the room. And I was like, one second! But yeah, that was pretty cool. Recording with him was really fun uh, to work with him during that time. It was like a crazy whirlwind of energy and creativity and just like nuts. And then after the tray thing, we were like, okay, like what kind of tour buses are we going to ride now? Like things, we're just going to be huge. And, uh, you know, things sort of were the same. And we were definitely felt like we were plateauing for a minute. Um, but that was also just us growing and getting older and and being like whoa like from 23 years old to now you know 29 you know six years in or something every band plateaus i feel like if you're if you're in it to win it i mean you're gonna be going up and down and plateauing all the time because you're you're learning and things change and and whatever i mean unless you just want to be an american idol and and just just hit it right to the i don't know we uh we were it's not like we were bummed we were just Things were the same. Um, we started playing a bit less just because I think we were a bit burnt. Um, you know, looking back, like, I, I definitely think I was leaning more towards just, like, trying to take some more time to just chill. And everybody, of course, understood, but everybody was definitely eager to get back on it. And we just sort of slowly got back on it. We, we did some, like, acoustic shows. We had a couple of new songs, um, you know, like we made two studio records. We were like maybe halfway into a third that we didn't finish, you know, and, you know, right around that time, you know, I, I also had the urge to play more piano. I was playing a lot of, I, well, obviously I was playing organ with Joe and playing a lot of foot bass notes on the organ and playing Wurlitzer with my other hand, you know, playing circuit bent toys. And, and I remember like missing just like putting two hands on the piano and being like, I need to do that too. I'm not doing that at all. And that's like my, that's my home base, you know, like piano's my home base. So Joe and I did some 
duo gigs where I was just playing piano, and that was pretty fun. Um, but I start, I put a band together with um, Matt Chamberlain and Reed Mathis. Matt Chamberlain I had met just through Ropa Dope and through touring and all sorts of things, and it was a drummer that I just loved and a dude that was hilarious. And Reed I'd met through the Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey, basically through like touring and friends and festivals and stuff. So and I always loved his playing, and I always thought it'd be cool to have a piano sort of project that was kind of Meldau esque, you know, like the he made a record called Largo. It's kind of like a cross between rock and jazz, and I was just wanting to make something like that. So right around that time, I started a band with those guys, and we basically made Invisible Baby, which was what I was hearing as far as a piano trio. And When I listen to it, I hear so much different music. I mean, I hear classical piano and Radiohead and Black Sabbath. And what was your intention with that album? I was coming fully from that Largo place. And, and there was another record called uh, EST. It stands for like Esborn Svensson Trio or something like that. And I, I forget where they're from. Maybe they're from Sweden. I think they're from Sweden. They made a record called A Strange Place for Snow. And Joe and I listened to that record a lot as we did Largo on the road. And it was like this kind of cross between like jazz and rock, just like cool, just like almost like funk or rock grooves with like kind of heady jazz harmony, but like a little bit laid back on the like whole bebop thing. It's more like expressive sort of linear playing. And I don't know, you know, it, was, it wasn't jazzy sounding. I don't really know how to describe it still. But um, anyway, those those things were like in my head while I was making Invisible Baby, as were Black Sabbath and Radiohead and Leonard Cohen and Modest Mouse and Deerhoof. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of music up in there. And during that time, I was listening to a lot. So I do remember being in the recording studio with Matt and Reed and recording Invisible Baby and just feeling super excited to put all those thoughts in my head down because it had been bubbling up for a while playing organ and writing music a lot with Joe and all of a sudden I just had all these new song ideas and all these new visions and colors and sound things that I wanted to get down and going into the studio with Matt and Reed it was like it just opened up this floodgate of like yes I want to do this all the time I want to do more of this that I can't believe we only have one day here I can't I can't wait to do another day imagine if we had two days here so that opened up the floodgate to like all those the first like four records basically that i put out as you know as a piano player leader of a trio and then right at that fourth record tiger face is when things changed you know when i added vocals to it to to one of my tunes and i didn't sing it, it was calmia from rubble bucket you know i wrote the lyrics with my wife and I had Cal sing it because I'd seen Rubble Bucket at a festival and was completely blown away by their sound and was like basically now ready to switch my whole thing to like sounding like more like Rubble Bucket and like more this new sort of wave of like music that I was hearing at festivals and just out there. And I was like, right, just like dancey, catchy, almost 80s sounding music like i want to i, I want to go there i love this you know um that song by the knife called heartbeats that we covered on me not me which was our second record was kind of like the introduction to that and and even on the third record um 
Between the Needles and Nightfall, like the two songs, Greenpoint and RISD, are kind of like those two tunes turning towards Tigerface, you know, like more dancey, more open, more easy, less jazzy, less piano-y. And then Tigerface was more synthy and less piano-y, less solos, you know, and then the vocals. And then all of a sudden the fifth record making it with Richard Swift was like, all right, let's like full on, like, let's write more songs with lyrics. I want to sound more like Tiger, like the first two songs of Tigerface. And obviously I'm not going to call Cal because she's not in the band. So I'm the one who has to do it. So bite the bullet and do it. It was just kind of practical. I was like, I know I can sing. My voice is low and it's not like what I want it to be, but I got to try to do something. So I did it. So, so that fifth record just changed everything and, you know, basically brought us to, to where we are now, um, which is like it, now the show could be more than half vocals and the other, you know, 30% could be instrumentals or vice versa. We can do 70% instrumentals and we can do 30% vocals. It really depends on what we're feeling, but um, it's grown, it's gone up and it's gone down and it's, I, I feel like it's going up right now quite honestly we just did a, a a really great tour good thing we just put out our our record and we were able to hit all the places we wanted to hit because we basically toured from october to february and we we went to japan we did the west coast we did the east coast we did the south we did the midwest we did all that we did so much and in the meantime did all those jrad shows we hit it really, really hard, and we were on the we we are on the up and up, going right into the complete present. With even just the last two months, I've been making so many videos and doing webcasts and doing lessons, and um, doing so much studio work and doing also just a lot of writing. I haven't done a show in I guess two months, but I'm feeling busy and creative. And like nothing's nothing's slowing down for me in that regard. It seems to me like place, the sense of place is pretty prominent in, in your work. You mentioned Between the Needles and Nightfall, which feels like kind of like a meditation on New York and Brooklyn. Shortly thereafter, you moved up to the Hudson Valley, right? And you have a totally different space now. Just curious how you see that evolve from the music you made while you were in New York to the music you made now. Like, do you identify with that sense of space or am I reading too much into it? No, you're you're nailing it on the head. I mean, I wasn't able to do uh, what I'm doing now uh, in Brooklyn, you know. I was in a tight space in Brooklyn. I, I had the kids. We were in a apartment, you know. I'm out here now, like, living on eight acres of land. There's a house my house 10 feet right over here this way and then i have my own separate building it's not a building it's a tiny room um but it's stuffed with lots of keyboards and i can get like crazy creative out here i mean i'm totally not attached to the house just mentally and physically when i'm out here if if especially from you know 9:30 p.m. to midnight when the kids are sleeping and my wife's just chilling, probably sleep. And I'm just like, yo, I got to get out here now. This is the time. You know, I never had that in Brooklyn. I never had that anywhere in my entire life. So 
when I used to come back from tour and walk into my studio, I remember just having that sense of like, yes, like, take me, I'm yours. Now's the time. Was the space part of it? I mean, upstate New York, the barn, any of that? Or was it just like, did you just find a good spot? We just found a good spot, first and foremost, because we had been looking for about three years for a place. And when we found this house and saw this side building, it was one of those, like, this place is magical. This place is so yeah. cool. We didn't realize how close we were to Woodstock. I mean, we knew we knew we were in a great community, but we didn't really know how good and how amazing it really was. We knew the barn was close by. Um, I had played the barn a couple months before we moved there with Levon and with Phil Lesh. And I just remember being like, I'm going to move here. I'm going to live here. Like, this is crazy. This is so cool. And then there's this element of nature that's amazing. Sometimes you, you're outside in the middle of winter and it feels like you're in, in Boulder. You know, like you're, you're in a mountain town. Like the stars kind of feel closer. Like, it's insane. I literally am living the dream. I couldn't even imagine being somewhere else right now. I'd be so stir crazy and losing my mind. I'm able to keep it pretty chill and stay positive because of where I am with the studio and the house and the kids and the pond and the mountains and the everything, you know. Were you a Dead fan, like, back in your teenage years? Were you listening to the Dead growing up? Absolutely. Um, I, uh, when I was 15, I got into the Dead and Fish and Cream and The Who. But the Dead... I like the dead. I actually saw them twice at Giant Stadium when I was 15 and 16. Once um, Steve Miller Band opened up. One time Sting opened up, I believe. And uh, I liked it. I liked it. I, I, It was too, at the time, it was too, like, country for me. I was more into, like, John Bonham drummers and music like mm-hmm. that. Like, like The Who, Keith Moon, uh, Cream. I love Ginger Baker. Which I guess is interesting because, like, I'm, like, a key- piano player, a keyboard guy, and I'm like, no, I was into, like, the bands that had, like, the badass drummers. Drums for me, it was always a thing. Maybe that's because of Joe growing up. Like, I remember hearing Cream and, and The Who and being like, yes. And even, like, Steppenwolf. I just liked all that stuff. I was just getting into everything. The Allman Brothers uh, at the time. You know, and if you wore Tevas and, and a tie-dye, like... Your friends were like, oh, you like the Grateful Dead. Being a young 15-year-old, I feel like the Dead is so dense. You know, they have such a big history. Like, I could totally see how it went kind of over my head a little bit growing up. I mean, I got it. Like, I, I like, had their tapes, and, like, I knew, I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't really connect with it too much. It's pretty deep. I, I am so much more of a Dead fan now than, than I ever was. I was more into Fish and their sort of silly quirkiness and their energy and their rise and fall with their jams and all that stuff than I was the dead at the time. And now it's like completely reversed, you know, where it's like, I'm, I'm just like, wow, I've, you know, I understand it more. I don't know. Maybe just, just learning about music or just, it's funny how there are always these like little holes in people's musical lives where like they didn't hear or know about this or they didn't hear or know about that. And you're like, Oh man, like it's I feel like the dead was kind of like like that for me even though I was a fan and had their tapes and saw them twice. It didn't really hit me that much. It didn't get me until 
till like recently, till I started playing more like uh, you know lots of other music. I don't know. I I just understand it more. I gotta say, you guys are not the first band to to take on the dead, obviously, but like one of the most successful. What is it about J Rad? Joe Russo's almost dead. That makes fans so crazy for the band. Why are you guys so successful in in taking on this band's catalog? Well, a lot of it's with with Joe and and Pete. Pete Costello, our sound guy, and 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 Pete Costello, we've known forever. He actually used to manage Joe and I when we were doing the duo way way back in the day, and, and Pete also was like one of the first tapers to come and tape us like playing at the knitting factory so pete costello is like kind of is the man and and we go way back with him and pete and joe have been seeing this whole jam scene just grow and from the wetlands to the bowery ballroom to you know just the beginning of all this and and joe fortunately had just played with further uh another version of the grateful dead like before this so and when that ended I feel like Joe and Pete just took their sort of knowledge about like the whole scene and what's going on, further disbanding. Joe, you know, maybe being able to carry the torch of that. And I remember even joking to Joe about this and being like, we were kind of wasted one night drinking a bunch of makers. And Joe had been deep into further and it was kind of towards the end of further. And I remember being like, Man, like when this whole shit with further's over, you're not gonna like take it. You're not gonna still be playing Grateful Dead. They're not gonna they're not gonna pass the torch to you, right? You're not gonna do that. I remember being like a total sobering moment at the time. He was like, Marco, I'm not gonna lie to you. I might call you and ask you to play some Grateful Dead tunes with me. And I like like put down my cup and I was like, No! Like you why would you do that? You're my dude. Like, we, no, like, we're like punk rock. Like, no way. We're not going to play the dead. Like, we're not a jam band. Right. All this stuff. And just being sort of anti that whole thing. And, you know, all of a sudden, Joe's calling me and asking me if we could play some Grateful Dead tunes. But I think the success has a lot to do with sort of a lot of thought involved with Joe and Pete figuring out how it's all going to work. And figuring out, like, look, if we get these songs down and, like, if we rehearse and really, really know what we're doing up there and play it, play the sets, the set lists and the way the songs weave in and out of each other and the way certain middle sections of songs are interpreted. Joe learned a lot playing with Further, you know, all those little secrets about set lists. I didn't even know about that. Like, fans would be like, I love, I can't believe you did that and that. They never do that. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but... Joe and Pete sort of know that world a little more. And I think they were really strategic with how the band could play for this amount of people. And then you have to wait four months and play this thing and then wait another year. And then we'll come back around and play this thing, but we'll sell it out. And like everything was really well planned throughout the year. And I remember even getting some emails from Joe about it. Like, look, guys, I know. I know it seems crazy, and of course, we all have a lot of things going on, and it, being a Grateful Dead cover band seems just sort of anti-everything you guys have been doing you know, your whole life. But listen, man, I think we could really make something cool. I think we can make it work. Like, let's just do all these rehearsals. Let's, like, figure out how we can make it work. And we all did. We all spent the time to get together and get it all as good as it is. And that's that, you know, and then on a simpler level when we play it live we get into our own thing because we played with each other with all sorts of things like from zeppelin to um i don't even know all sorts of stuff 
so we can communicate with our own sort of language of, of improvisation of how we want to do things that might not be like pretty normal because we can all go pretty far out there you know coming from maybe more jazz backgrounds here and there and and joe's love for you know electric miles and more experimental stuff so the the improvisation is just different we have a different take on on how to play e to a versus another band playing e to a we uh we're all good listeners and good friends What do you see as the most like exciting or interesting trends in music or, or the things that you've seen in music, both as an artist and a fan? Or is there anything that's like really kind of capturing your imagination that's that's going on right now? Honestly, I like working with uh, Leon Michaels for this last record. I, I, I'm like totally like checking out lots of stuff that he's been doing. And um, there's something about, you know, Big Crown, that record label. Uh, that's I, I really feel like they're putting out great music like all around the way they're recording the music and the way they're capturing it all and making it sound like those guys are pros and I'm just blown away by them they work they work at a diamond mine studio in Queens and I've played there a bunch and Leon sort of hired me to play on a bunch of different stuff like the the Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib stuff that we just did the Tiny Desk concert and then I went there and helped him score a movie and um, just been checking out a lot of stuff that those guys have been doing and I just keep on getting blown away by Big Crown and their and their stuff. It's just like sometimes when you hear stuff, you like want to bite into it. <laughs> I hear the stuff they make and I'm like, I want to bite into that. It really sounds so good, like just production wise. And I don't mean like high quality, so good. Like, I don't mean like new technology, you know, like it's... It's just has nothing to do with anything like that. It's just more like the the way they get, um, you know, even just like the groove, the band to sound good, to like the way they get the bass drum to sound so good. To it's a combination of great sounding stuff from an engineer standpoint to just like amazing musicianship. They're all just like people that I've played with, like Lady Gaga and like Amy Winehouse. You know, they'll they'll play with all sorts of people, but they're they're like new friends that like I've been seeing more and playing with here and there and also just kind of like checking out their music and all the, the tracks that they've made. I'm just like, oh my God, these guys are killing it. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Like 10 years from now, looking back, what do you what do you want to have accomplished? Like, what do you want your life to be like? Do you want to be just in your studios making music? In 10 years, man, that's crazy. Well, the kids will be 23 and 20 that's like after college or if they even go to college i don't even know um who knows it's a very interesting question because things are things are changing you know what i would like to happen is which would be really awesome is if when my band went out on the road <laughs> if we play instead of playing for 500 people it could be 5,000 people i like picturing that because we have so much fun our music's a big party it, the more people, the bigger the party, the better the party. Um, that would be really rad. And then just like writing more music, writing better music, um, making better albums, collaborating more with people, and then like r recording music for some sort of different stuff that I wouldn't think I'd be in, like doing the Tiny Desk thing with Freddie Gibbs and Madlib. They were like, was that Marco? Like how? What? You know, like 
those those new collaborations are are really cool. So I I hope to have lots more of those too. And then of course just everybody being cool over here uh, with the kids and and my wife and this whole community of Woodstock. I'm just hoping it's going to evolve so much in 10 years. All right. Well, Marco, thanks for joining us. And for you all listening, stick around because you're going to hear some music from Marco in just a minute. But thanks, Marco, for taking the time. You got it. And now here's Marco Benevento performing two of you Dropkick, and In the Afternoon Tomorrow. Video of Marco's performance is available on the Osiris YouTube page at youtube.com slash osirismedia.
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.